Welcome to The Best of Film, The Worst of Film. Celebrating some of the best films ever made and the worst films ever made. I'm Jay Liverman. And I'm Carl Joseph. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Well, Carl, this may seem a little ambitious for us on our first episode, tackling one of the most beloved films of all time. Do you think the Force is going to be with us on this one? The Force will be with us always, Jay. <laughs> of course. A review of 1977's Star Wars, along with 2000's Battlefield Earth, and a pair of sci-fi rebellion pictures today on the best of film, the worst of film. In 1977, George Lucas, off of his successful American Graffiti, decides to take a big risk in going after this space opera, Star Wars. And it ends up paying out big time. On an $11 million budget, this film ends up making $775 million. And so it has been regarded as one of the great films of all time. It was included on American Film Institute's top 100 films of all time. When I first saw Star Wars, it was 1997. I was nine years old. The special editions were being released of all the original trilogy. And what I was really captivated by when watching Star Wars for the first time, it was its amazing use of visual effects with seeing the space battle, with seeing the uh, the lightsaber duels, mm-hmm. I mean, seeing the the two suns yeah. on Tatooine, the landscape, it was something I had never seen before. And I'm sure back then in 1977, it stood out to them as something they had never seen before, and so it blew their minds as well, just it, like it captivated me in 1997 yeah. when I saw it for the first time. And I was really blown away by the climactic space battle on the Death Star at the end of the film. Yeah. I was on the edge of my seat, didn't know what was going to be happening, and really blown away by the excitement and the... I got caught up in the wonder of it all. The quest, Luke, on his journey to rescue the princess and to become a Jedi. I mean, that was exciting stuff. So, Carl, what do you think it was that captivated audiences back in 77 that has led to this film becoming an all-time classic? And do you think it still holds up today as a classic? I think it still does, because it's, it's a foundation for uh, essentially a, a culture of film and, and art, even. Um, but for me, I think for its time, it was a great execution of a, of a mix of many topics from like spiritual commentary to action, adventure, and coming of age and comedy coming together. Right, you're blending all these sort of archetypes together, these different types of stories genres yeah it's it's in a way it's like a western it's it's a it's a comedy in some ways with you know the humor is is amazingly done in this film it's a war film i just thought about that yeah i mean i mean i guess it's got it's kind of can be considered a science fiction movie Mm -hmm. because of its use of space and spaceships and technology yeah and Mm -hmm. and so you had all these different uh these different archetypes that are are, are very well presented in this film that makes it a timeless film, in my opinion. I I think that uh, these are the kind of stories that will continue to tell for centuries, as we've already been hearing about them for thousands of years. Absolutely. 
Kurosawa, Kira Kurosawa was a very big influence on George Lucas. And he was a guy who, Japanese filmmaker, did a lot of samurai period pieces mm -hmm. that were inspired by the American Western. And so it almost looks like what, you know, the beginning of Hidden Fortress, which is one of Kurosawa's classic films. I personally think it's good. I, I don't think it's as one of his best, but I still think it's a, it's a solid film. And it starts out with these two servants who are caught up in some war, and then they end up on a journey by themselves, which then they meet this general who then's trying to free this princess from enemy territory. I mean, come on, haven't we? <laughs> it seems a lot like Star Wars. Exactly, exactly. And so you see the inspiration there with R2D for R2D2 and C3PO. Yeah. Right. And which I think is I think it's a bold move on George Lucas's part to start off with very insignificant characters mm -hmm. uh, for his the beginning of this space epic. Yeah. It, it's it's exciting to see how this story develops, but it starts with really really humble beginnings. Absolutely. Um, and they're, they're, they seem to be very integral to the story. Um, right. you know, if you had only their perspective, it would still be a complete story. Right. Right. Um, like if Wallace could talk, very insignificant. Yeah. And, and speaking <laughs> of talking, I mean, they have such great interactions in this film that are hilarious. Yeah. And you can't even understand the other one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Laurel and Hardy, uh, a Jay and Silent Bob. You know, with R2-D2 and C-3PO. Or uh, Shaggy and Scooby. You know? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, you right? Know, you know exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Because of Shaggy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it's 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 some of the best uses of humor in all the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. Is in their interactions with each other. And, I, and, and, and talking about the humor, actually, I think this movie does a great job of really uh, using the humor in a way that goes parallel with the story, in line with the story, uh, to where it doesn't become a distraction, mm -hmm. it doesn't become a tangent, it doesn't become some sort of uh, opposition. It's, it's not... It's like a driver. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a major driver, but it's definitely, it drives the story some. Yeah, it, it, it helps to uh, have some relief from the tension, but as well still develop the story further. A lot of a lot of the humor is done through the interactions of two different characters, mm -hmm. whether it be through R2-D2 and C-3PO, or whether it's through Han Solo and Princess Leia. Mm, uh, flirting. Right, Luke and, and Han Solo. All of these help develop the relationships further, and which allows for more character development. Yeah, I, It helps me to appreciate more about this film and its way it utilizes humor. Sure. It, one of my favorite moments of the film is when Luke and Han are in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon together. Mm -hmm. And Han's talking with, with Luke and says, so what do you think? Uh, a girl like her and a guy like me? And quickly Luke says, no. No. And, and it's just that that timing, that delivery, it just works so well. Perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk about a little bit about the, you know, the visual effects of this film. Mm -hmm. I, I mean... In this day and age, we are so used to seeing CGI in pretty much every action film. Yeah, and it's getting better, but it's still not it's still not reality. I found the lack of CGI in this film to be refreshing. To know that when I saw the Tunisian landscape, I was looking at something that was real. Yeah. When I saw 
C-3PO and R2-D2 in the desert walking on sand. That was real sand, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And it was refreshing to see that. As well as seeing the, that they were using practical effects, uh, the projections that they used, the models that they used for all the, the space battle sequences, uh, that was refreshing because that, that looks better than some of the stuff that we see nowadays and with CGI. Absolutely. It doesn't look real. It's not relatable. You know, it's, if it's, there's, um, there's a technique, or not a technique, but like a litmus test that uh, set designers use, art directors, and even costume designers use when they're designing a character. It's called the Uncanny Valley. If it's uncanny, it's, it's ugly, it's unrelatable. Okay. You know, um, that's really interesting because all of this, it seems relatable. It seems like they could be real characters, real settings. Mm-hmm. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. And I also am, am blown away by this production design. I think that's, with the lack of CGI, I get the chance to focus on the production design of this film, the way the ships look on the inside, the mm-hmm. way the Death Star looks. I mean, it just the industrial feel to it, the, the fact that it was so big and huge, it felt like a grander scale than anything we had seen before right. in, in film. And then as well to see the creatures and how they were designed... The Mos Eisley spaceport sequence, excellent, with all the different creatures in there. And imagining what it would be like to see those things for the first time, I mean, it must have been so exciting to watch. As well as you had the droids and, and seeing all the different droids they designed, I mean, I felt like it was just such a, a, an interesting world that they were developing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that says a lot about how we see the future. <laughs> How so? Um, so you know my favorite movie, Wally. Um, yeah. They're projecting all these different uses for things. So like the R two division for warfare, but also utilitarian um, purposes. You know these things are, are given purposes, and so they're designed for that. Um, and I think in, in George Lucas's mind, he's designing these characters, um, these creatures, and these devices. Right. Um, you know to to, to resolve that for whatever um, that period of time, you know, though Star Wars is told a long, long, long time ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, it is a period of time, and we don't know where, um, yeah. in our perspective. Yeah, and I mean, and that's, and that's one thing I think that helps us to be a timeless film, mm-hmm. right? It says it's a long, long time ago. It's also possibly could be telling us what the future could look like. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be set in any day and time, which, of course, any of the great fairy tales can be done in that way. Yeah. The same archetypes could be used in different settings. That's one great thing about Shakespeare's works, that you can throw them in any setting at any time, and it yeah. can be well done. And great storytelling, is, it gives uh, verisimilitude, some, some actual um, details to its surroundings so that we understand and see that it could possibly have been you know, a part of a period of time. Right. Context. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the performances. First off, I want to bring up Harrison Ford Mm -hmm. because I think he's the best performer in this. Either him or Alec Guinness. I feel like... I think Alec Guinness, but go on. Yeah, I, I think that Harrison Ford has, at least his character, Han Solo, has the greater character arc in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy who is self focused completely he's got his own agenda he's looking out just for himself he only takes orders from one person 
that's me, right? Mm-hmm. He even says that yeah. in the film. He He's out for money. The only time he's motivated... Mercenary, really. Right, he's a mercenary. He's a smuggler. I mean, the only reason he even does anything good in the film is because he wants financial gain from it. He's looking for that. Right. I don't know why even Chewbacca wanted to spend time with this guy for so many years. <laughs> and so, but, but the way Harrison Ford delivers his lines uh, with such arrogance, mm-hmm. with such conceit, that it is really showcasing how despicable this character is. Yeah. His sarcastic tone, it's brilliant. And at the same time, Harrison Ford does a great job in certain scenes where he's he's able to come across as if he's improvising. Actually, he has. He is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the uh, the scene where they're in the uh, the prison cell, okay. when he's on the mic, yeah. he intentionally didn't re- remember his lines, so it would seem like, ah, uh, because like, he's, he's actually improvising. Everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? It's unplanned. He's like, I don't know what to say. So... Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> and that was so well done. It's it's kind of like what Han Solo would probably do, mm-hmm. that he gets caught up in troubling situations and he has to improvise a way out. It's really great, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, good point on great, great performance. And, a, and, a, and his, you know, his great turn at the end, which as a kid, when I saw this film for the first time in 1997, I didn't know he was going to come back and help Luke out in attacking the Death Star. So true. And you know what? We see that so much in films today. Right. So this is this is a turning point. Right, right. It was very influential in mm-hmm. that you have Han Solo's character and, and of course the way Harrison Ford uh, delivers, you know, his lines at the end and the way he c- conveys his emotions and his facial facial features and everything. I mean it looks like he's going to be gone. Right. You know, that's what we expect from him. He's gonna take his money and go. And he says, May the force be with you. And it almost feels like he's saying it just for an obli- ob- obligation, ob- obligation, yeah, yeah, and and that and that he's just gonna go and say goodbye, and that's his way of saying goodbye. But then he comes back. He has that character arc where he makes the turn for the good to realize there's something greater than him out there yeah. and, and that he needs to be a part of and helping out, which is helping these rebels f- find freedom from the empire. So it is true that he is really dynamic as a character. Yes, and I think it just was. A really good starting point for I mean not that that was his first performance but that really was the performance that took him up to uh, notoriety with audiences around the world and of course has uh, propelled him to where he is today mm-hmm. as one of the most iconic actors in American cinema history yeah but Al Guinness you were you were saying about him um, so yeah he's like the classic um, role um, or even just like you would think a uh, persona for mentor leader right um and someone who ultimately you know who have to pass the torch right so he does um but because of 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 the quality of his character and he's he's pretty static as a character he doesn't really change much he's already developed um i would love to see his backstory but because he doesn't really change you know everybody else is influenced he's got conviction um and I think because of all that consistency that he does drive the story. And, and uh, we talked earlier, I think he's one of those profound characters that really do, um, that we do lean on, that we anchor on throughout the whole story. Right. And that's typical for any of these movies mm-hmm. with an older man 
being a guide to the younger man. Yeah. Like Gandalf to Frodo, like Dumbledore to Harry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and one thing I really admire about Alec Guinness's performance is that he's he's restrained, and that he's not, you know, over the top with his performance in any way. Mm-hmm. He's not uh, exaggerating his his mannerisms, his face, his movement in any way. He's really, which would make sense for a guy who is so wise mm-hmm. as him to be restrained, to really be subtle with his performance like he is. I really like certain moments where he has a little bit of a smile to him, a little bit of a smirk. One one moment in particular was when he's at his house with Luke and Luke is asking him about his father, about what a, you know, about a Jedi, what a Jedi is, about mm-hmm. the Force. And there's a moment there where where Alec Guinness smirks a little bit. Yeah. When Luke says the Force, like this question mark. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it basically goes to show that that he's smirking because he's recognizing how naive Luke is to all yeah. of this. Yeah. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Alderaan? I'm not going to Alderaan. I've got to get home. It's late. I'm in for it as it is. I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. It indicates, like... Oh, you soon will understand, right? Um, right. You know this force. Um, you know, it's. I don't think it's like committing to the fact that he will believe, but you will understand and see because, you know, dude, man, Ben Obi Wan Kenobi is going to prove it to you for sure. And you know, he even he starts off very lightly demonstrating the force um, to him. Right. He's definitely one of the most iconic characters yeah. in in the Star Wars franchise. And Alec Guinness was the only actor in any of the Star Wars films that has been nominated for an Academy Award for their performance in any of the Star Wars films. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor uh, for this performance. I wanted to talk about, as well, Peter Cushing. And who Peter Cushing, he had, of course, uh, a long history in British cinema. He was Sherlock Holmes. He had been in many different horror films. And and so, getting him for this film and his small role as Grand Moff Tarkin, excellent choice. Hmm. Excellent choice for this film. The the way he makes the most of his small role. I mean, more than anybody else, I think. Yeah. If you were to get anybody else for that part, it wouldn't be anywhere close to as great as, great as he is in this film. The way he's able to have this sense of distinguished honor mm-hmm. and prestige to him with how he stands with how he walks, with how he articulates his voice, and yet at the same time with how fierce he is. Yeah. That he's got this this fierceness that's coming out. Uh in 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 how he how he says his words at times. You know, even in uh with we'll crush the rebellion with one swift stroke. Just the enunciation, the over enunciation of the swift and the stroke right there communicates and conveys fierceness yeah. to me. And for him to be so heartless to then decide to blow up Alderaan, Princess Leia's home planet, I mean, this guy is he's a he's a nightmare. He's he's a he's, he's cold blooded. He's cold blooded. Yeah. yeah. 
Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. No, Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't. You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target. Then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so it'll be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Dantooine. They're on Dantooine. There. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue with the operation. You may fire when ready. What? You're far too trusty. Uh, in fact, he even has power over Darth Vader to some extent in this film, right? When he says, Vader, release him. You know, this part where Vader's force choking a guy. Mm. He says, Vader, release him. And, it's, and, and Vader complies. Now, maybe that's because Vader is thinking big picture and thinking, oh, this guy has power over me now because the Emperor wants him to have power over me, but one day I'm going to be ruling over him. I don't know. We're speculating. We're speculating <laughs> there. But at least it shows Grand Moff Tarkin, he has this sense of power and prestige with him mm -hmm. wherever he goes in the performance and on the Death Star, which really is limited to just being on the Death Star for... Less than 15 minutes, but really makes the most of it. Absolutely. And I guess he, he understands his place. Right. In the film, or in, in the story altogether. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So the score, I think, fantastic. When I first, when you first hear the horns coming out, the triumphant horns blasting, mm -hmm. when the Star Wars logo comes up, after you already had that, that quiet moment there, where you had no sound mm -hmm. in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then boom, you know, da, 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 right? The yeah. Star Wars. And that just is so, so memorable. It, it was it was actually that score, this score, was regarded uh, by AFI as the number one score of all time. Wow. And, and this is, like, this is American films we're talking about here. Yeah. So not, not all of cinema, but, but still highly respected, highly acclaimed and iconic because it's there's nothing else like it yeah and those horns coming off and and really just blasting with the logo quickly going back as it was all in your face and then going backwards mm -hmm. very quickly as if it's a spaceship going into hyperspace that makes sense yeah um since we're on sound i want to talk about sound effects yeah uh, that that adds a lot to a story because it's um being sensory people um, we we need feedback, um, so everything from well even lights and sound. So like with the the, the lightsabers um, clashing against each other, the fires of of the guns, um, uh, the robots thinking, the right. you know people walking down a hall, all that um, had to be added to the film. And um, I forget the name of the the the, the sound engineer that created it. Uh, but the the guns firing is just a slinky hanging from a ladder. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and all that just really adds 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 to the story because you're in a different world, you're in a different time, maybe you're in a different universe, and you need all this, you know, to to create an environment. Wow. Oh, that's some good stuff. Mm -hmm. so, I wanted to ask you about a certain point in the story, the climax. Yeah. We know typical story arc, exposition, rising action, climax, uh, falling action, and then the denouement, uh, which we see at the end. 
as we see Luke's story unfolds, we really begin to understand his relationship with all the different characters. And I was curious what you thought the climax of the story was. I believe the climax of the story is when you have the, the rebel forces battling the Imperial forces on the Death Star, mm -hmm. trying to destroy it. I think that's the pivotal moment of the film. Okay. Really the climactic moment of the film. I think it's when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, the Force will be with you always. Or perhaps when Obi-Wan Kenobi ceases to be present. Okay, when you say the Force will be with you always, are you referring to the time when he says it to him in physical form and saying it to him in the Death Star? Yes. Okay, okay, just check. Yes. Yeah, right there in the, the bridge or the command center before he leaves them. The last thing he says before they get into all the action on the Death Star. Right, because he also says it to him in force, voiceover form. Yeah. The force will be with you always. Right. So that's so the reasons why I, I, I suggest those two, two is because one is where he's forced to actualize what his purpose is. Interesting. Luke's purpose. Right, okay. You know, because he doesn't have his mentor. He's not relying on him anymore. He actually actually do this stuff, these things independently. And everybody's relying on, on Luke. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, I mean in a way, you, we may think as an audience, oh, of course, Obi-Wan's still around up until the, the confrontation with Darth Vader. Right. And so that's when, from that point on, Luke will have to be on his own. But really, his last moment, that Luke's last moment with Obi-Wan is inside that room where they split up and and really that's where Luke has to start embracing the person he's going to have to rise up to become exactly and to go after rescuing that princess right and then the other point as you mentioned when he and Darth Vader are facing each other he just surrenders the fight he sees that Luke is is actually doing what he's taught to do yeah do you think that he gives himself up because he knows now that they're right next to the Millennium Falcon, they're going to be able to escape? I think it's deeper than that. Okay. Yeah. I think it's much deeper than that. When he sees that, he's, he's, he smirks again. That's yes! that smirk yes! again. Yes, You know, he, he just pulls up the saber, and then Darth Vader goes away. And he's gone. And I, I'm very specific about that. He ceases to be present. Because right. Because he, he appears again. Spoiler. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think it's been 41 years. I think everyone knows okay. how this movie is. Yeah. Uh, he ceases to be present, and that's a choice. And yeah. now Luke, because he witnesses that moment, he's now motivated. You know, he's not forced into it. He's not thrown out of the nest to fly his, right. with his own wings. He's motivated because that's what he's thinking, right? Right, and that's a good point. Because even when I think about Mark Hamill's performance as Luke, there's sometimes I think about how whiny this guy gets mm -hmm. in the earlier part of this film. But I think I start to really like this guy in the in the latter half of the film. I really think he starts to come to his own, almost as if they filmed the movie scenes mm -hmm. in order how they are in the film, making me think that he improved his quality of acting. Oh, okay. It, it, just, it just seems like he just does a better job with his delivery of his lines and just his mannerisms his gestures and and everything and he just ceases to be whiny in the second half of the film yeah 
Maybe he's just acting his age <laughs> at this point. Star Wars is out and available on many streaming devices, uh, as well as at your retail store and possibly in a galaxy far, far away. Next up, we'll have a Q&A, followed by our review of Battlefield Earth. Robert Shaw as Quint in the 1975 classic Jaws. Regarded as the first blockbuster, and uh, this will be part of an ongoing series for the rest of the summer as looking at and reviewing great classic summer blockbuster films, we'll be looking at Jaws in our next episode in two weeks along with Jaws the Revenge. Well, Shark Week's coming up, Jay, so how, how timely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, uh, really good timing. Jaws, Shark Week, it makes sense. What I really want to look at with, these, with this podcast, I really want to look at the best movies ever made and the worst movies ever made. Give me the top 20% and the bottom 20%. Nothing in between. For me, I, I'd like... I really appreciate classic films. I really admire them. I don't want to waste my time with mediocre or even just mildly good movies. And at the same time, I think that with movies that are some of the worst ever made, I really have a strong affinity for them because of how funny they are, how much they make me laugh, how much I am I'm amazed by them by how they even got made and how some of the mistakes that happened in these films happened. And it just, it makes me really intrigued when I get to watch a really bad movie. So for me, it's either the best of the best or the worst of the worst, nothing in between. Anything you'd like to add to that, Carl? Um, when you brought this to my attention, I was so excited about it because this could be a very interesting for... Uh, multiple people to converse over because differing opinions someone might actually like one of the movies that we're critiquing as as a worst film that's true um and also it's like even uh some of the worst films have cult followings you right. know um we were, we were looking through a long list of films and uh one will come up people learn from those films and they try to emulate either like do it better or actually mimic it um because of people's affinity to them right um if right. you think of like terrible b movies or horror films right uh tarantino tries to replicate that yeah in some of his films yeah um so yeah i think it's great that we can do this and and talk about it at length excellent and now we'll have our q a segment this will be an ongoing segment that we'll have where you get to email us any question pertaining to film and we'll answer it Email us at bestfilmworstfilm at gmail.com. And our first question comes from Stephen, 
in Fairfax, Virginia. He actually has a two-part question here. His first question is, which trilogy do you prefer? And just going with the original three, he says. The Star Wars trilogy or the Indiana Jones trilogy? We all know, of course, that Star Wars has extended well beyond the original trilogy, and Indiana Jones has Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which should never have been made, but <laughs> it still is part of that series, so it technically is no longer a trilogy. But he wanted to ask, just comparing the original three mm -hmm. films from each series, which one do you prefer? I can't answer this question in good conscience because of the fact I actually haven't seen Temple of Doom, and I haven't seen all of Last Crusade, so that's been a big blind spot for me. Uh, I need to check them out at some point, and at some point I will. And so I'd have to defer to you, Carl. What, what do you think? I would go for Indiana Jones. Why? Why? Uh, nostalgia. Yeah. For sure. And okay. Indiana Jones, you know, is part of the, the I guess, the, the circle of with George Lucas, John Williams, Spielberg, and of course, um, I'm blanking on his name. Harrison Ford. <laughs> Odd Solo. We just went. Talk, we just talked about him. <laughs> um, of course, Harrison Ford, and he's in all three, and he's a consistent character. They have consistent things going on, and it was part of my childhood and adventure. I love adventure and being outdoors. So because of those things, I think it is because it is my, my favorite. So really, I mean, like, if you were to compare all six films, mm -hmm. how would you rank them? What's the criteria? I mean, which one's the greatest? Oh, okay. Which one's the second greatest? I mean, what would you say? I think I might change my answer now. <laughs> I think Star Wars would be the greatest because of all the, the different genres that it tries to play into the story right when indiana jones is action adventure and somewhat romance right i mean i've only seen raiders of the lost ark mm -hmm. in that series i think you can capture most of the trilogy and, and some of that so you would say that raiders of the lost ark is the best of the three yeah of indiana jones okay so and i think that film though i think it's excellent mm -hmm. and i think it's one of spielberg's best I think Empire Strikes Back is the best of the six films. Okay. At least at least from what I've seen, sorry. Between the four films I've seen, Empire Strikes Back I think is the best. Mm -hmm. If you think Raiders is better than the other two, then yeah, okay. I think I would not change my answer if I have even if even if I do see those other two films uh, of Indiana Jones yeah. in the trilogy. And uh, which one is your favorite of the of that of those six? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Okay. If we're just sticking with the two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Interesting. So not Star Wars, not Empire Strikes Back. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark is your absolute favorite. Yeah. I mean, great film. And we'll probably talk about it on another episode. So we'll save our, our thoughts for that. Then, uh, next question that Stephen had for us, he had a two-part question. He mentioned about a trilogy that should have stopped at the first film. And... And he said, by the way, he said the Matrix couldn't be used. So, because it was too easy. He's partial. Because <laughs> that's the first one I was thinking of when I first read the question. But then he said right after that, uh, you, can't, you can't say the Matrix because that's too easy. And 
Actually, I have to take Stephen's question and expand it a little bit further because really there are just so many film series that are beyond three films right. nowadays. And even trilogies that we, back in the day, that we thought were going to just stay trilogies became you know, more than that when they added a fourth film or a fifth film on it. And so if I were to look back over you know, all, the, all the movies, all the series, all of those, which one should have stopped at the first film and not gone on any further? I would probably have to go with Jaws. And, and I haven't seen Jaws 3, and I still need to see Jaws the Revenge, which we're going to talk about on our, on our next episode. But from what I hear, they are very poorly reviewed. Um, and so when I'm just looking at Jaws 2 by itself, compared to Jaws 1, and Jaws 1, it's funny, just compared to Jaws, I think Jaws 2 just seems like a TV pilot that failed. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it seems like. And so I'm thinking you take everything good about Jaws and you just take the soul out of it. Oh. And it really just becomes... Uh, it really degrades the quality of the first film if you focus so much on Jaws 2. It, it is, I don't think it's even a film worthy of even talking about on this show in the worst of section because it was just so dull. It's like lukewarm. Luke, lukewarm, yes. <laughs> that shark is swimming in lukewarm water, my <laughs> friend. And uh, it, it was just... It, it's. I just wish they just stayed with just Jaws. And I'm sure I'm going to feel more of that I'm more certain about that answer after we watch Jaws the Revenge for our next episode. Along with, you know, I haven't seen any of the Psycho sequels, but they went to four, uh, Psycho 4, uh, which is just outrageous. Uh, when when you have such a classic film as Psycho, and you're going to then just trash it with all these sequels, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't make any sense why they did that. Uh, I guess some, some easy cash they were trying to get. I don't know. But it's a shame that they did that. Um I can't think of any other answers right now off the top of my head. Any thoughts that you have? I can think of a couple, um, and this one might offend some people. Godfather. Oh, man. Yeah. Godfather, okay. I love number two. Of course, number three is terrible. Uh-huh. But if they had stuck with just the one, I think standalone, it would have been a classic standalone film. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with you. I can't... It Really, in my opinion, the second one is the best one. Yeah. It's the superior film because it's telling two different stories at one time. You know, the rise of Michael Corleone, uh, continuing to rise as being the godfather, yeah. and as well as the, Family the story history. of Vito yeah. rising to power. And those parallels uh, that are happening and uh, those opposing stories as well, it's interesting how it's being told. Uh, it's such a fantastic, fantastic film. The acting is tremendous uh the the story is just captivating it's just so excellent in, in so many different ways and the cinematography the score everything you cannot you cannot nix godfather at one you cannot just like keep it at one you've got to have part two you think so yeah i mean i'm with you on part three part three was a big disappointment part three is is just why question mark why did you make this you know just maybe needed some extra money. Coppola probably needed to pay some bills, so giving his daughter a chance to come out. <laughs> right, she was a big she was a big part of that that film uh, as a, as a, one of the main actresses, mm -hmm. uh, which also was one of the weak points of the film. I felt. Yep. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm with you that there shouldn't have been a part three, but I definitely think you can't. I can't. I can't get rid of part two. If if it's if basically you're telling me, like, Jay, we'll have to 
you can have Godfather Part 2, but you also have to have Godfather Part 3 with it. Or you have neither 2 or 3, and you just have 1. I'll have to take 2 and 3 at the, in, the, in the package deal. Okay, and that's how I feel. So it's because it's it's hanging off. Because is, is, is it... Is it that if you get, like, three different flavors of something, mm -hmm. but, say, for instance, strawberry and chocolate, and then vanilla, which is very plain, mm -hmm. and because you start off with the, my favorite would be the strawberry. Yeah. And you mix the two. Yeah. And, and to make something else, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean... So you're th you're saying that this idea of mixing the bad with the good mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't work. You don't want to tarnish the legacy of the first one. Yeah. Keep it as itself. Don't have another one. Yep. I mean, I think it ends on a good note. You know, it just it definitely has a good resolution to where it could stand alone by itself. But I just disagree with you, sir. <laughs> All right. Um, so my other one would be cars. Oh. <laughs> and they have the like the planes. <laughs> And I don't know if they're technically sequels or at all, but Cars. Yeah, Cars. They have Cars, Cars 2, Cars and Triple X. You can keep going, really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I've never seen the Cars films, actually. That is a big blind spot for me. But I've heard that from, from several people that those are some of the weaker Pixar films. So if I missed any of them, I... You're all right. Yeah. 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 So... Our next question comes from Kai in Tom's River, New Jersey. He asks us, Nicolas Cage, is he overrated or underrated? And we disagree on this already. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say, Carl? I would say he's overrated. Yeah? Why yeah. is that? Uh, he's just too much into himself and even his acting, his performances. I see a lot of him his roles mm -hmm. and, and not so much the character he doesn't become uh the role that he's trying he just becomes nick cage playing some some dude on screen yeah okay i see you know? i mean I, which movie are you referring to in particular anything after ghost rider i think i lost because i loved him in gone in 60 seconds mm -hmm. um and then anything after that yeah so yeah anything ghost rider and then past yeah okay i, I think I'm I'm the exact and opposite. I'm the opposite mm -hmm. here uh, on this one in that I think he's underrated because of the fact that he gets such flack nowadays as being a bad actor, as as being this guy who's just in a bunch of bad films that he's he gets made fun of a lot uh, for for being in these films like Left Behind, Season Season of the Witch, Wicker Man, Bangkok Dangerous. But when I think about his earlier work, mm -hmm. I, I really see a great actor in him. You know, when I, I got a chance to watch Raising Arizona for the first time a few weeks ago. Oh, cool. He was excellent. Yeah. And in, in his, uh, just in his character that he created, uh, being this uh, repetitive offender uh, who was trying to uh, make things right uh, with his newfound wife and trying to have a baby and just the ludicrous things that happen in that film with his reaction to things with his character choices i think it's a brilliant piece of work and uh his acting is is excellent in that but i also think about other films of his that i really really love i like bringing out the dead and 
Adaptation. Adaptation in particular because Adaptation, he's playing, it's a Spike Jones film, which you can expect it's going to be a little weird, a little quirky. And he plays Charlie Kaufman, uh, who is a screenwriter. And he also plays Charlie Kaufman's twin brother. And so you've got two different characters he's portraying in the same film, and he's having arguments with each other. You know, they're having arguments with each other. It's 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 really funny to watch uh, him trying to set up these two different characters and be two different people in the same film. It's really intriguing. And I think that's the kind of stuff that really showcases why Nicolas Cage is a good actor and that he's just maybe not been a good actor lately. Okay. Maybe he's just made some poor film choices or maybe just doesn't care as much. Mm-hmm. I actually even liked him in National Treasure. I thought that was a... You know, that wasn't bad. Yeah. You know, I agree. That wasn't wasn't bad. Yeah. And so I think overall I would consider him underrated, especially considering how much negative feedback he gets nowadays about his work. So if he didn't get as much, would he still be underrated? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. <laughs> like, let's you say... gotta lower the, the curve <laughs> a little bit. You know he won an Academy Award. For what? For Best Actor. For Leaving Las Vegas. And now I've never seen that, but I'm just saying, he's an Academy Award winner. I loved uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, and with that being said, you saw that performance. I haven't seen that film. Mm-hmm. And you saw that, and you'd still say that he's overrated? <sighs> to your point, he hasn't made any good films lately. <laughs> Can we do Nicolas Cage part one, part two, part three, like yeah. of his career, <laughs> and then and then identify him and designate them different labels? Let's say he retired. Yeah, let's say, <laughs> let's assume that he retired uh, after maybe you know adaptation in two thousand. I think it was two thousand two, and then his twin brother, uh, evil twin brother, decides to join a, a, you know film and become an actor, and maybe that's who's been acting in all these bad films. I say that I agree. Yeah, let's just assume that's the case. Nicholas Cage's evil twin brother has been the reason why Nicholas Cage has a bad reputation now. There you have it. There it is. <laughs> when we come back, a review of 2000's Battlefield Earth. In the year 2000, Roger Christian, who was the art director for 1977 Star Wars, directed Battlefield Earth, which is an adaptation of L. Ron Hubbard's famous novel. L. Ron Hubbard, Hubbard uh, by the way, is the founder of Scientology. A lot of Scientology references in this book. And this whole project of this film getting off the ground was spearheaded by John Travolta, who had regained popularity and been back on the mainstream because of Pulp Fiction in 1994. And he wanted to try to get this film made and follow through on uh, getting it done. And and it ended up uh, on a $73 million budget. It ended up costing that much money to make this film. And keep that in mind as we go further into the discussion. And it only recouped $30 million of that $73 million. And so it proved to be a big box office flop. It won many Razzie Awards, Razzie being for the worst uh, film that year. And it also won the Razzie for worst film of the year in 2000. 
along with winning in 2010 the Razzie Award for Worst Film of the Decade. And so, Carl, this film is regarded by many as one of the worst films ever made. Do you think it truly is one of the worst films ever made? I don't know. <laughs> it is a terrible film. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredibly terrible. Just watching it was actually I wanted to see it's like it's like a train wreck. That's what it was. It was a train wreck. Right, right. Cuz you were you wanted to see what how how much worse it could get. Yeah. Yeah. And uh not to say that there, there are any trains in this film. No, no but trains. <laughs> but but definitely a train wreck. Yes. <laughs> It's as if the director took this palette and was given all the, all these colors on this palette and said, hey, make a painting. And he decided to use every single color to the excess, hmm. to the nth degree. And it just is so over the top. It's, it's outrageous. Is it brown? I, <laughs> it becomes brown, yes. A big brown mess. That's what we end up seeing here with Battlefield Earth. I mean, it, basically what I mean by that is, is that there are all these different filmmaking techniques that you, you could probably learn in film school. And he, Roger Christian, you know, has, has heard about these, of course, and learned them. And he decides he could use any of them he wants to. And he chooses to use all of them and just use all of them excessively. That's what it feels like yeah. when watching this film. I mean, it, it, his use of slow motion in, in Battlefield Earth, uh, you know, it, it, the use of, of uh, Dutch angles, you know, the tilted angles... Uh, with with the camera, as well as the way the uh, the scenes transition. What, the, what was... So it's like it looks like a, a rolling shutter. Yeah. You know, and early on you have it going from left to right, and then later on you see it split from the middle. Yeah. And even scenes are still on the 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 the, the, the splits. Yeah. And that's even really weird in itself. It seems like some weird PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, crossfades with clip art. <laughs> and so, I mean, and really, maybe, like, with a slow motion, that is cheesy when you use that, right? I mean, how many slow motion scenes were in Star Wars? Zero. But how many were in this film? Too many to count. Too many to count, really. I mean, I was losing count about 30 minutes into this film. And maybe if you use it once in a really crucial scene in the conflict, uh, it, you know, it would be effective. Yeah. You know, but, but really by using it so many times, it loses its effect. It loses its impact. Yeah. I don't care. Techniques like that are meant to be punctual. Yeah. You know, they're, they're meant to be a statement with a certain context of what scene is playing. Yeah. It's, it's not like there was any purpose behind these. I mean, I can respect when a director, you know, chooses something and, and runs with it, mm -hmm. and really goes after it, and executes it really well, even if maybe I don't agree with that decision. I wouldn't have done it that way. But then there's times, like in this movie, where he makes these decisions to direct in these certain ways, and, and the way the film goes, like whether it be with the slow motion, or with the use of Dutch angles, where it just seems so random, and it seems so... It's quick, and then they throw it out. Like it goes, they go in a different direction, and it doesn't even matter. Like, and it's done so many times, it just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not. I'm not getting why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, good point there. And and really, it just it just makes me think. 
oh, I'll try that this, this go around. I'll try that here, and let me do that here, and let me do that. And that's what it feels like when I'm watching this movie. Uh, it, it just definitely uh, seems overly excessive, which, of course, loses all of its impact. I, I was almost starting to get a little bit nauseous, I think, with the Dutch angles. <laughs> the... Uh, and on top of that, I mean, you have even some of the acting that's done by John Travolta. I mean, how excessive he can get. Yeah, he's 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 almost vaudeville type, <laughs> but still nonchalant. Yeah, he he does this laugh in the film. It's very maniacal. You know, he's the villain. He's the antagonist. It makes sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, you're too much! He's got this laugh. and But yet, he does it nine times in the film. I did a count. I just started getting to the point because he kept doing it. I thought I'd, I thought I'd start counting it. How many times he laughed. And it was nine times. I mean, that's one of those examples where if you do it once, maybe that's effective. If you do it nine times, it loses its impact after each time. And then it becomes really ineffective. Mm -hmm. That's not to mention, as well, how many times John Travolta uses the word rat brain in, in the film. Rat brain or leverage. Leverage, right? And it's it seems like uh, even the character had a, a, ch a shift in his career. He went from the chief security dude on Cyclo. No, what was the Planet Earth? Yeah. And, you know, as soon as he was let, let go, essentially, or not allowed to return... For 50 cycles, <laughs> he had a, a career shift to enterprising from the humans Yeah, to his demise. <laughs> yeah, to his demise, right? And yeah, and even the whole like with the, with 50, 50 cycles, with endless options for renewal, that whole part there when he's being confronted by his superiors. Oh, thank you, sir. I, I don't know if I could have kept my sanity to be here another five cycles. We've decided to keep you here. For another 50 cycles. With endless options for renew. With endless options for renew. With endless options for renew. If you had any word you could describe on this film, it definitely is excessive. And it seems like they spent excessive money on this too, right? With a $73 million budget. I don't know where they put that money. Like, what did they use that $73 million for? Right. Because even where it could have gone toward quality... It's not there. The animations, the CGI. Which is crazy because Roger Christian was a former art director for Star Wars and for Alien. Mm -hmm. And yet the animation and and the CGI, the the scenes, the scenic design, all of that, like that that looked really cheap. Yeah. So you had talent, top talent, so it's John Travolta, which he invested his own money into the film, so it's right. not going there. Forrest Whitaker, Barry Pepper, uh, Kim Coates, nominee Kelly uh, Preston. Kelly Preston. Where was she? <laughs> she was the the really big headed lady. She's barely there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so maybe some of the money went there, but yeah. like everything else toward the production just did not show up. Right. At all. Right, and it it boggles the mind as to what they did with that, and I think the fact is. Like, there are other films, I would say, that are more incompetent than this film, that are more amateur, more amateur, more disorganized, but at the same time, those films have a way smaller budget, 
And so when you're given $73 million to work with, the expectation is for you to, to do something pretty good with that, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, Star Wars, granted, it was $77, right? Uh, 1977 money, mm-hmm. but it was $11 million. Right. And so even if you converted that to $2,000, you know, in 2000 you know, m- money. It'd still be a smaller budget, right? Yeah, be a much smaller budget. And and that, the, that you know, those scenes in Star Wars, the space battles, the... The creatures, I mean, it didn't really look that fake at all. It looked pretty real to me. Yeah, and the creativity. Like I was telling earlier, they were using slinkies. And they're still <laughs> using that sound three decades later, yeah. four decades later. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, so, and I think as well with the, the fact that this movie is with these characters, they have too many characters they introduce too quickly into the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Barry Pepper and his tribe that he's a part of, and those different characters. Mm-hmm. Then you have Barry Pepper encountering these other guys as he's traveling out and hunting for food, but then he ends up encountering these other people uh, on while he's out hunting. They create a, a short bond, but a bond. Yeah. We don't get to know them. Right. We. In fact, it's so funny that they focus so much on those guys for that moment when they don't really have any significance for the rest of the film. Right. And and then we int- we are introduced to the Cyclos and their alien force and everything. And, uh, of course, Barry Pepper goes through, like, six plate glass windows in slow motion. <laughs> He's, like, <laughs> perpetually tripping. <laughs> right. Right, there's a lot of that in the film. Yes, excessive slow motion, excessive Dutch angles, excessive tripping, and excessive maniacal laughter, as we were talking about earlier. But yeah, there's just so many characters that we... And I I don't even get to know much about any of them, and we never get a chance to really focus on any of them, really. I feel like the the character we get to know the most about, and Mm -hmm. we get to learn the most about, is John Travolta's character, who is the antagonist of the film, so I'm not really supposed to care about him. And so, with that being said, I, I really am left, at the end of this film, not really caring about anybody. And so I don't care about what happens to them. There's no investment for the uh, the, the viewer. Exactly. And and even Barry Pepper's girlfriend, I don't even know her name. She comes back. She comes back, right, right, right. He, he like, sees her at, at the beginning of the film, I'm going to go out hunting or whatever. And then they never tr- go back to that that spot. They never go back to that that environment. They never go back to her. For an hour, right? It's like an hour that goes by. So you you think that he's completely left that part, that area, and that is never going to be reintroduced in the film. Yeah. Because if if it was going to be reintroduced, it would have been done, I don't know, like... Or some sign. We would have been given some sign, some sort of, like, call for help. Right. Like, like Barry Pepper would have tried. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then finally she shows back up. Uh, about an hour into it, and says, oh, I should probably go looking for him now. And I'm thinking, okay, what were you doing the last, I don't know how many days it's been or how many weeks it's been since yeah. since he he left. It's, I don't, I don't really know how, how much time advances in this plot. What I do know is that they do say that this film is set a thousand years later. You know, so basically the film was made in 2000, set in the year 3000. And they say, like, the Cyclos... They were able to overpower the human beings. They call them man animals. Mm-hmm. They were able to overpower them in nine minutes. That none of their technology could stand up against them. And so they were able to 
to stop them within nine minutes and take over the world, right? But then I'm thinking to myself, okay, how come if it's been a thousand years, how come they didn't how come they didn't find Barry Pepper and his tribe of man animals? It's not like he was in Antarctica on another side of the world. I mean, he went out on horseback looking for food and then gets in, encounters one of these cyclos. Yeah. On, randomly at a mall. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, why, why did it take a thousand years to find these people? Yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, uh, you know, later in the film, you basically have Barry Pepper being trained by the cyclos in order to to understand the cyclo history in order to understand their language so that he could be a good trainer or a good leader for the other man animals so that they can go mining for gold and basically the cyclos can't go into these certain territories to mine for gold because they have a certain radioactivity level intolerance yeah that uh that yeah if they went there they would they would die you know and and so they need to use man animals to do that and so uh what they do barry pepper does that you know he he gets the training right but i don't think they even really get it like if they're gonna if they're going to train him with all of the knowledge of the cyclo aliens Mm -hmm. right and their language did they for any second ever suspect that this may backfire on them? That's where I feel like uh, Terry, John Travolta's character, and Kerr, his his sidekick, uh-huh. are very much like Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> you know, they're always missing something, but they're always thinking ahead. Yeah. And the biggest thing, I think would have been obvious thing, you're teaching me, the language, technology, how can they turn it against us? They're they they are so so, what's the word? Proud. Yeah. They they make assumptions about the man animals that you know, they can't do it. Right. You know they're doubtful the whole time, and so that, who would think they're brilliant enough to, feed themselves, or who would think they're brilliant enough to turn our own technology on us? Right. Right. And and that's what ends up happening. Uh, Duh, like, Barry Pepper's going to use that and teach everybody else and then try to start up a rebellion against these aliens. And and what he does is they go to these places like Fort Knox. It's really funny. It says Fort Knox, Kentucky. Even though it's a thousand years later and the names of these places have no significance in this day and age. Why do they matter? Right. And they go there and because they, they're able to then uh, find gold already already stored yeah that they can then use that use a lot of their time instead of mining they can use it for training to fight the aliens and so that's what they end up doing they end up you know uh training and what they end up doing is they 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 start taking a flight simulator a computer program and start learning how to fly these jets which by the way it's been a thousand years how are these jets still working Right. How is there even fuel 
in these jets. Metal corrosion, chemical settle. They have a shelf life. Like, how does this happen? Right, right. And and he's doing this all while they're supposed to be mining. Uh, and and yet, how come none of the cyclo aliens, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they monitoring these people? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, as you see through the film, especially John Travolta, you know, his character, he's, He's he's really big on surveillance. He's really big on being a step ahead, on on knowing, kind of seeing what's going to be happening next, and so being prepared. He records things all the time, records things on video, and they even had cameras they they put on these man animals on their shirts earlier in the film, and so I don't understand why they they didn't just film, you know them. Uh, yeah. They could have been monitoring from a tree or some fake animal or something, except they just had a drone pass over every couple of days. Yeah, and and even then, it's just like it seems like they don't care. Yeah, it seems like they're just they're just asking for it. So it just doesn't make any sense. And the fact as well that you have this rebellion that's then started by these jet, you know, these guys in jet in jets. Uh, which, by the way, I mean, they're learning how to fly jets <laughs> in, a few days. in a few days. Like, it's it's a pretty impressive uh, group of, of people here <laughs> learning how to do this so quickly. Um, and and yet, even though that same technology was not able to stop the Cyclos a thousand years ago, yet they're able to stop them now with the same technology they had a thousand years ago, whereas the Cyclos had a thousand years of time to be able to advance in their technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes no sense. Right. I mean, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very um, silly. Silly is a good word. I, I think it's just, it's uh, very incompetent, inconsistent. Yeah. And as a story, but even just storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. This dude, Sir Roger Christian, He's at this point. He's he's supposed to be a vet, right? You know, and, and filmmaking, the acting, it's supposed to be like A-listers, but it just does not deliver. So, Carl, what do you think they could have done to turn this movie from being one of the worst pictures ever made to being one of the best pictures ever made? So, in 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 creativity, there's this thing called ruthless exclusivity okay hone it back pull back all those those layers of paints that you were talking about earlier and made it a a more simpler film uh than what it is if you're trying to convey like an origin story or something that's real it doesn't seem like you care too much with all this just throw it all in there We, we we need it to be told um but this is not a good way to to share that um, so with the, the, the techniques that they, they, they include in the film, the, the styling, so like the colors, certain things, uh, the, I have a beef with the costumes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They're What's just, up? they, they seem like very like 1970-ish costumes. There's not much creativity there. And so I, I didn't get anything out of that being on the. The aliens. Interesting. Yeah, the cyclos. If there's anyone listening who has read the book Battlefield Earth 
and would like to provide some feedback on how the film was adapted based on the actual book and, and how good the book is, really. Uh, I'm curious to know. Email us. Uh, email us your feedback on that. Ditto. And so, yeah, I mean, would you consider this one of the worst films? I mean, is this, this is, does this qualify for our, our, our discussion? Yes, it is a worst film. Yeah, absolutely. Seal of approval there, or disapproval. Yeah, totally disapproved. <laughs> Battlefield Earth is available now on Netflix and other streaming platforms. If you have feedback for us on and you agree or disagree with our review, please email us at bestfilmworstfilm at gmail.com. Join us in two weeks where we'll do a series of Jaws films, Jaws and Jaws the Revenge, uh, just in time for Shark Week. For the best of film... And worst of film, I'm Jay Liverman. And I'm Carl Joseph. Have a good day. <laughs>